So in talking about serve day, just so you, you can connect this, one of the motivations or one of the streams that, that flowed out of was our series that we've been doing through the book of Exodus. And because we're free to be God's people and to be God's people, we're free to serve him and serving him, we serve our community. So that it's helping us to understand how do we do this? What What is what are we freed and liberated for? So we're talking about Israel being freed, but that's been fulfilled in the church in our age. The Lord has done amazing works of power to prepare the people of Israel, as we've seen through the first 12 chapters of Exodus. And if you have your Bible or your phone, you might open it to chapter 12. We'll be jumping in at the end of chapter 12. The Lord has done amazing works of power to prepare the people of Israel to launch on their exodus from Egypt. So it's awesome what he's done. It's fearful what he's done. As they begin their exodus, God establishes them in what they will need to remember the redemption story. So one thing we'll see today is God just wanted to make sure that you don't forget what he has done for them. So this is so they will remain committed to him, and he's freeing them to live as his people. So that's what he's purposing to do. If you haven't been with us through the first 12 chapters of Exodus, it's a tough place to jump in today because what God does is may seem kind of harsh, like, wow, why did, why did he do that? And so um, uh, as Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride said, let me explain. No, let me summarize. Several generations prior to where we are today in Exodus, Egypt had made slaves of the Hebrews. They were ruthless to them. They, they uh, oppressed them. They, they worked their tails off. They made their lives bitter. In addition, they called their citizens to throw Hebrew baby boys into the, to the Nile River in order to um, reduce the chance that the, the Israelites would be able to build an army. So God calls Moses to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. God says that Moses is to go to Pharaoh and tell him that Yahweh, so that's God's, thus we know how to pronounce God's name, that he actually named himself. Yahweh means I am. Uh, the Lord, Yahweh, demands Pharaoh let his people go, that they may serve him. To persuade Pharaoh to do this, Yahweh says Moses will need to do miracles. And so God says, don't worry, I'll supply the miracles. You just be available to, for me to do them through you. After nine miraculous plagues that virtually bring Egypt to ruin, Pharaoh still won't let the people of Israel go. So the Lord, Yahweh, warns Pharaoh about the tenth plague. He says it will involve the death of all the firstborn of Egypt, so it's pretty serious. He gives him fair warning, if you don't let my people go, you've had nine opportunities to do that, you've refused them all, uh, I will make sure that all your firstborn and all your families die. And God tells Moses, he's still not going to listen, and then he's going to let the people go. Before God brings about this final judgment of the death of Egypt's firstborn, he instructs the people of Israel that each family is to take an unblemished male lamb, slay it, and take the blood and apply it to their door frames. The Lord will pass over the homes with the blood-painted door frames, and their firstborn will not die. In other words, the lamb is the substitute for the, the Israelite firstborn. So that's very key to, to Israel's identity, and, and that's what the Passover is about. We read some about that. He's going to touch on that again today. In addition, the people of Israel are to be ready to move out quickly by taking only unleavened dough, since there's no time for the dough to rise. Keep their sandals on and keep their walking sticks handy and ready to, ready to exit quickly. So God has prepared and protected the people of Israel for what he's about to do. 
the Lord brings about his final act of judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt. And we'll read that in verses 29 through 42 of chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was, was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by, by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened. Because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the, of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Father, we ask that you would give us hearts to receive and understand your truth. Strengthen me to be able to communicate it in a way that's helpful, that does justice to your word, and that helps us to see how you want us to respond, enlarge our vision for who you are, and maybe know more about Christ, who is the fulfillment of all Israel ever hoped for. We ask these things in his holy name. Amen. So the Lord strikes down Egypt's firstborn. So the people are warned, Pharaoh and the rest, and they're getting up and checking on their firstborn, and as they find them dead, and these aren't all necessarily babies, these are firstborn in any family, and they're finding them dead, and so a great cry goes out uh, throughout Egypt, as you can imagine. Pharaoh demands Moses and the people of Israel get up and get out of here to go serve the Lord. I wonder how hard that was for Pharaoh to do that. Moses has been saying, we, we need to go serve the Lord, and so... Pharaoh's saying, no, you're staying here, you're serving me. And now he's saying, okay, go serve the Lord. I mean, that had to be a huge downer for Pharaoh, for sure. And um, not to admit he's giving in to the God who had defeated him, who, him, Pharaoh, who was the representative of the gods of Egypt. So this is a humiliating time for Pharaoh. He says, take your flocks and herds and be gone. Now, in one sense, Pharaoh has come a long way since disregarding Moses, to now asking him to bless him 
hey, bless me. Um, what God said of the descendants of Abraham earlier, 600 years prior to this, is the one who blesses you, will, I will bless. The one who curses you, I will curse. Well, Pharaoh's done nothing but curse people of Israel, so he's, he doesn't deserve a blessing. He's just under the duress of the moment. Say, hey, bless me. Help me, because I'm freaking out at what's going on. And what we see here is God's redemptive plan for his people can't be stopped. <clears throat> There's never any question Jesus will, will reign over all the earth. That's God's ultimate goal by releasing Israel is so Christ can come and reign over all the earth. God's redemptive plan cannot be stopped. And then in verses 33 to 36, the people are freaking out, and they're saying, hey, we're all going to die, so we'll do anything. Just, just get out of town. Leave us. It's not only that God has caused the Egyptians to fear the people of Israel. He's granted them favor so that the Egyptians will supply them with gold, silver, and clothing. And actually, they use this to fund their trip and later to build the tabernacle. So it's incredible how the masters they were slaves to fund their their, their, their journey and their building of the tabernacle. God had said this would happen. One thing to, to notice this, people are not our enemies. Oh yeah, some may be against us as followers of Jesus, but the exodus that Jesus accomplished for us was to free us from sin, death, and devil. Jesus plundered the strong man Satan when he freed his people from sin. Keeping us, we were kept under the dominion of the devil by his, and he freed us by his death on the cross. Christ's people are Jesus's plunder from the devil. And then in verses 37 to 39, we see Israel gets going. Finally, they get going on their way. God fulfills his promises. He has promised to multiply Abraham's offspring as the sand on the seashore and the stars. So 600,000 men would mean about two, at least 2 million people. So God has taken them from 70 back when to about 2 million. And it says a mixed multitude went with them. So maybe some Egyptians, maybe some other foreigners who were living in Egypt who are, are impressed with, with Moses and, and Israel's God. And then through verses 44, 40 to 42, we see that they were there for 430 years. Not only did God compel the Egyptians to let them go so they could be free to be his people and serve him, he also knew that the people of Israel needed to be compelled to go out. They needed to be compelled to go out because this is the only place they'd ever known. So even though they were suffering, even though they were in, uh, oppressed and in, uh, working in horrible conditions, they, they needed to be compelled to go out. They couldn't imagine a new life in a place they had never been. So we do that sometimes. Even though we may hate the hardships that we undergo, we often will make the choices we need to be set free. That was my circumstance growing up. After three years in college, I thought, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I wasn't really, I, I didn't know Jesus at that time, so I thought, I need, to, I need a new start. The problem was it was my version of a new start. So I was living in Indiana, and I moved to, to the desert in Arizona. And I thought, hey, this will give me a new start. I lived with a friend out there and, and um, was doing things I shouldn't do. And after a year of that, I thought, well, 
I think I need another new start. So I moved to Connecticut, Arizona to Connecticut. Moved in with my girlfriend's parents. And I needed to be thrust out, so God saw to it that I got really, really, really sick. So I was... I couldn't keep anything down, including water, and uh, I lost about 15 pounds. And at that point, I decided I'm, I'm moving back home. Geographic, geography wasn't the issue. It didn't matter where I was living. It was where I was in relation to Jesus. So after moving back home, I went to a, an outreach dinner where I heard the gospel and came to, to Jesus at that time. So God had thrust me out of Egypt in order to bring me to himself. And again, it's not where you are physically. I mean, sometimes that makes a difference, but it's where you are in relation to God. He may be thrusting you out in order to re- relieve you from your addiction to things that are, that are destroying your life and keeping you from him. So do you need to be thrust out right now? I don't know. It's amazing how we can be ruining ourselves and relationships, and yet we won't quit the behavior because we're, we're comfortable. It's amazing how comfortable we can get in just really rotten situations. So God tells them more about Passover in verses 43 to 51. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we, we already read about Passover, and so God's talking about it again. And he really wants Israel to be rooted and grounded in remembering his works of redemption. Why? Why do they need to do that? What God did in the Passover defines them as God's redeemed people. And they repeatedly forget what God has done for them and who they are as his people when life gets tough or the world's temptations are strong. Let me repeat that. They repeatedly forget who God is for them, what he's done for them, when life gets tough or temptations get strong. Does that sound familiar? When life gets tough, or temptations get strong, when you need God most, we're tempted to forget him. And so God wanted to make sure, as before you launch here, I want you to know that you, you need to practice this Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread in order to, so you can have it sealed in your mind and in your heart. This is what God has done for you as his redeemed people. So now in this Verses 43 to 51, and you're going to have to read the Bible for yourself because we're, we're not, we've got too much turf to cover here. But um, anybody can eat the Passover if they're circumcised. Or if you're a woman, if, you, if your dad is circumcised or your husband is circumcised, what, what's the deal with that? I mean, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's a covenant. You need to be in covenant relationship with the Lord God in order to take the Passover. If you are in covenant relationship with him, if, you, if you're saying that I'm part of the covenant community, then you need to, to take the Passover. So you can't be circumcised and not take the Passover. It defines their identity as a covenant people. Passover lamb was the God-ordained substitute whose blood protected the Israelites from the death of their firstborn. When they put the blood on the door, they showed they believed God's warning of the coming judgment and that they believed in his provision in way of the deliverance. I'm so grateful we still don't sacrifice lambs. I mean, to ask each one of you, okay, come to the communion table today. There's a lamb. We'll sacrifice it for you. It would mess up the carpet. 
and I had my fill of it when I was in uh, southern Chile with the Maipuche native peoples there. They hung, they sacrificed a lamb in order that I could have a blood dish. So I hung a lamb by its foot and uh, punctured its neck, bled it out in a bowl, put some spices in it, and said, here. I couldn't do it. Could not do it. So it's great to live under the new covenant where Jesus has fulfilled the Passover lamb and no more sacrificing animals. Or at least you shouldn't be for that reason. You may do it for other reasons. but. And then in chapter 13, uh, Moses starts talking about, through God, uh, consecrating the firstborn now. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but the firstborn are set apart to the Lord because he spared their firstborn in Egypt when he destroyed the firstborn of the Egyptians. And it connects with the Passover unleavened bread because this is how Yahweh spared Israel's firstborn and delivered them from Egypt. So Israel is to remember the Lord. This is in the first 10 verses of uh, verses 3 to 10 of chapter 13. Again, God is establishing and rooting them in his redemption his redemption story, that they were slaves and they've been freed to be God's people. So he says, commemorate this day. God delivered you with a strong hand. If they forget their origins, they will cease to be God's people. If they forget their origins, they will cease to be God's people. That's because they will forget how only by God's goodness and power they are free from slavery to Egypt and free to serve him. So it's very important that they not forget and again, the, the representation of the unleavened bread was, you were in a hurry for me to blast you out of Egypt. And so I decisively, completely, radically delivered you out of Egypt. So you spend a whole week eating unleavened bread remembering that. I'm no longer in Egypt. I'm no longer uh, committed to the things that they are committed to. I'm free from Egypt. So God wants to make sure you always recognize that about their identity. That's why so much emphasis on the Passover and unleavened bread. God delivered with a strong hand. He brought you out. So how can we relate to, to the, the people of Israel having been redeemed and freed from slavery in, in Egypt? Well, the scripture says we are in a worse slavery. Apart from redemption by the deliverer God sent us, apart from Jesus Christ, we're all slaves to sin. You say, well, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not a slave to sin. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. So uh, God's requirement is 100% perfection. You've got to score 100% on all of his tests. You can't ever make a mistake, ever. And he says you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if you have, have you loved God perfectly every single moment of, of every day of your life? Um, so if you're there, wow. <laughs> if by any chance you're not there, then the Scripture says you're a slave to sin because God requires perfection, and anything that interferes with that is devotion to another, uh, a standard lower than God expects of us. So as a culture, we believe that we're basically good. I mean, it's amazing how people can do so many terrible things. You, you take time to watch the news or don't do that, and you can see that people are not basically good, but they still say it. Well, you know, I, I know this person is a mass murderer, but basically he's a good person. If we don't believe in sin, why do we still feel guilty? 
So there's an article in the New York Times by a guy named David Brooks. It said, the strange persistence of guilt. The strange persistence of guilt. Here's why it's persistence of guilt is strange. The dominant worldviews of our age have turned beliefs about right and wrong, good and evil, into little more than feelings. We don't really believe there's something that we should really feel guilty about. It's just feelings. So I should just be done saying this is right and this is wrong. I should just be able to extinguish my feelings, my guilty feelings. In other words, our worldview should have freed us from feelings of guilt, yet we still feel guilty. We live in an age of great moral pressure, he says. We may lack the words to express it because religion is fading away, but, but we still feel guilty. Why do we still feel guilty? In other words, whatever donation I, I can make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There is an endless list of items for which you can feel guilty. We have feelings of guilt, but no way of redemption. That's because if there were true forgiveness and redemption, we would have to acknowledge that we had something to need to be forgiven and something about us that needs to be redeemed. Because we're made in God's image, we can't erase the sense of good and evil, right and wrong. We may think we're being kind to others and that we'll feel better about ourselves by denying, minimizing, or redefining sin. Calling it normal. But it's like denying the results of a medical test that shows we have cancer. We may avoid feeling bad for a while, but we won't seek the treatment we need to our ruin. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness which the image of that in the scripture in Romans 1 is like taking a, a ball in, in the water in the swimming pool and pushing it down, trying to hold it, submerge it underwater. That's what it means to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's what we do. Believers in Christ need to be rooted and grounded in the story of God's redemption. We don't only talk about our, our redemption in Christ once a year, like Passover, it's all the time. We take the, the Lord's Supper together. Everything in Scripture points to Christ, so we're constantly learning more about what Christ has done for us, what he is doing in us, and what he will, will do for us. And it's good for me to reflect on what Christ has done to, to rescue me from my sin, from my Egypt. If my sin is no big deal, why did the Son of God have to die on the cross for my sin if it's no big deal? Christ is our life. That's what we celebrate when we, when we take the Lord's Supper, as, as we'll have the opportunity to do after this message. He bore our sins in his body. And then he talks about, in verses 11 to 16 of chapter 13, about consecrating the firstborn to the Lord. Now, we still don't do that. I mean, we, we do child dedications, but that's not what this is talking about. This is In Israel, they were acknowledging that because God killed put to death the firstborn of Egypt and spared the firstborn of Israel through the shed blood of the lamb. Uh, they're always to acknowledge that, that God provided the substitute for them or their firstborn. So that's why they do this consecrating of the firstborn. They don't sacrifice their sons. They redeem. They pay a redemption price to acknowledge, this is the, I give the first and best that I have to the Lord, and it's, it's, it's his. So we don't set apart or consecrate, redeem our firstborn. 
we trust in Christ who is called the firstborn. In Scripture, he's called the firstborn because he's the beginning of a new humanity. So we're not just consecrating our physical children, um, not because of this text, but because of Christ. We trust in him through his incarnate. Because he came in the flesh, because he died and rose again, he becomes the firstborn of a new humanity. So that's what this is about. And again and again, if you read this, if you go back and read this text, make sure that things I said are really there, which is always good. Chapter 13 of Exodus. Keep saying over and over again, by a strong hand, he delivered us. By a strong hand, he brought us up out of Egypt. It's by God's power. Always remember that, not our own. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, I think we got that verse up on the screen. It says, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Christ is the price that God bought us, so we belong to him and we, we glorify him because that's what he saved us for. And also, verse 7.23, you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. So you're a, a redeemed people. You're a redeemed people. You belong to God. Like a child to a parent. If a child is kidnapped and held in captivity and you free him, you don't just free him and turn him loose on his own. You bring him back to the care and supervision of his parents. So when God frees us from sin and death, he doesn't free us just to go out and make our own way, do whatever we please. He frees us to belong to him. Or it's like a, it's like a marriage. Um, we belong to God. In a marriage, we belong to each other. Patty and I did the numbers the other day and realized this anniversary in May, we have been married 29 years. So that can either, I can either say, well, boy, that's been so restrictive. I've been restricted by you for 29 years. I hope you appreciate that. Or should I say something different? Yeah. Uh, I'm hopelessly devoted to you. Sing that song for, would that be good? Which would be worse? It's like a marriage relationship. That's what faith in Christ is. It's not uh, just acknowledging he's there or he's, or he's a savior, but it's he owns me and, and I'm his and he is mine. I'm his and he is mine. That's what it means to put your trust in Jesus. That's what he saved us for, into. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Because of God's mercy in rec- rescuing us from captivity, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual your spiritual worship. And so because of that, we won't be conformed to Egypt, this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind so that we may do the will of God. So if you've grasped in your heart that God has mercifully delivered you from sin's penalty and slavery, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as your spiritual worship. We're no longer showing our consecration to God by paying a redemption price for our firstborn. We're presenting ourselves to God as living sacrifices, as worship to God for having mercy on us. Does God leave us on our own to, on our own resources to live out this new redeemed life? Or does he just say, well, I've set you free, now go figure it out? Uh, we'll see that he didn't do that to Israel in verses 17 to 22. So I think that's on the screen. So you can see that I am actually getting my words from the Bible. It's about time I showed you that. Here we go. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. 
But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from, from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So um, it was by God's mercy, by Yahweh's mercy, that he didn't lead them by the land of the Philistines, even though that way was nearer, because he knew their weakness, and he knew that they would freak out and want to go back to Egypt, especially since they were just being born as a nation and haven't had battle experience, so no military training. So he knows their weakness. Unfortunately, these words about them fearing and returning to Egypt points to some of the, their reactions to other hardships they face in their journey. So later on, they will say, hey, we should just go back to Egypt. But, so God already knows that. He's sympathetic. He's like a, a, care, a caring father who knows the weaknesses of his children. God leads them the long way around through the wilderness to the Red Sea. So I, I, I wonder if right now, maybe God is taking some of you the long way around to get to where he wants you to go. And that could be frustrating. But God's doing it because he knows your weakness and he knows what he's doing in your life. Don't be discouraged if he's taking you the long way around. So they camp at the edge of the wilderness just ready to leave the Egyptian territory. And the pillar of fire and cloud never leaves them. So sometimes we may think, I sure wish God would lead us by pillars of fire and cloud now. I could really use a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud to show me what to do. We may think that. It didn't work for Israel. They, they had it for 40 years, and they still griped and complained. They, they just were not impressed enough to continue to trust God. So um, we have something a lot better. You know who that is, right? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is far better than clouds and fire. Better than that by far. The Holy Spirit doesn't just display God's presence for us. He unites us to Jesus Christ so that we have eternal life from him and his righteousness. He gives us new hearts, inclined to God and holiness. He seals us, that is, he authenticates us as God's children and is the guarantee of our internal eternal inheritance. He, he gives us the spirit of adoption, causes us to know God as Father, and not just the man upstairs or uh, the, the ruling force in the universe. He knows, we know him as Father because the Spirit causes us to cry out to him as Father. By him we put sin to death. He's the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. He helps us in our weakness in prayer and intercedes for us. He opens our hearts to understand and obey God's word. How often has God the Holy Spirit kept us from situations that would overwhelm us? I wonder how many times the Holy Spirit has redirected my, my route, my thinking, my behavior into a way that spared me so much more damage than I've already done to myself. He empowers us or leads us to serve in Christ's name. He'll empower you to serve on serve day as well as your everyday service that you do for the Lord and your family and your, and your places of work. We constantly have that Jesus connection. He unites us to Jesus. We're married to Jesus because the Holy Spirit unites us to him. We're truly 
living through Christ. He is our life. We're going to acknowledge that as we take the Lord's Supper together. So I'm going to pray. And uh, as you are worshiping the Lord through song, feel free to go help yourself to the communion elements. If you are in Christ, if you are a truster in Jesus, if you believed in Jesus, if you're married to Jesus, it's for you. You take the, the bread, which is the representation of his body. You take the cup, which is the representation of his blood. And you're, by this you're declaring, I know that I live only because of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. If you don't yet believe in him, then until you do, this meal would not be for you because it's declaring something that you don't yet believe. You have not yet trusted in him. So feel free to take those elements. And uh, also, we have prayer people on either side of the room, both during the communion if you want. Uh, would you all stand up just so they can see who you are? If you need prayer while during the, this time of worship and communion, uh, you have these amazing people to pray for you. So I'll pray in Paris, and we'll continue our worship. Father, we thank you that you have brought us out of sin slavery, not because you saw the potential in us, because the only potential we had was destruction and judgment. You redeemed us through the blood of your son Jesus, through his coming in the flesh, through his death on the cross through his resurrection and now he is at your right hand interceding for us and your Holy Spirit that you've gifted to us far better than a pillar of smoke or fire helps us in our weakness we don't know how to pray as we ought so right now Father I don't know how to pray as I ought but your Holy Spirit interprets my prayers to align better with your will but we do cry out to you Father because your spirit within us causes us to say Father because we're related to your son, Jesus, we need your help. We need your daily help to help us live out our identity as a freed people, the people that you've liberated from sin and death and given us the privilege of, of being your servants in the community and among the nations. So continue to strengthen us, Father. Give us the confidence that Christ is for us because he has declared he is for us. As we take these elements together, as we dip the bread in the cup and take the symbol of his blood and the symbol of his body, may we delight ourselves in him. May we rejoice that he has rescued us and given us new life in him. We ask these things in his name. Amen.